uh, in Sunday school. Uh, Shane shared about scripture memorization, and then Jake talked about Bible reading plans. Uh, I've been teaching about hermeneutics, that is how to read the Bible. Uh, This morning we were looking at the book of Psalms. Last week in Sunday school we looked at uh, Psalm uh, 23 and uh, something called uh, Lectio Divina, which is a way of reading scripture. It's a technique where you read the text and then you meditate on what you've read, you pray, you contemplate uh, the experience, and you read the text again and again and again. There are uh, certain spiritualities that are connected with it. Uh, It can be a very profitable thing rightly done because it slows you down and actually gets you to think about the text. So this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text, and I'm going to ask, actually, uh, don't, don't bother putting it up on the, on the screen, and it sounds terrible, but don't bother turning there in your Bibles. Uh, I'm just going to read it, and you listen, listen carefully, and see if there's something uh, as you follow along that sticks out to you, that the Spirit sort of impresses upon you, and just, just listen. Okay. You can close your eyes if you want, you don't need to. We're going to read the text, and I'm going to pause, and then I'm going to read it again. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So you would take a moment, you would think about... uh, one of the elements of that passage, and then you would respond to God in prayer. 
whatever it was precisely that stuck out, that stuck out would be what you would take to God in prayer. And so I'm going to ask uh, that you do that for a moment. And just for example, if it was sharing in the heavenly calling, you, know, you, you thank God for that, that He's called you from heaven to heaven, that you'll walk faithfully with Him all the way, that you'll reflect your calling. If it's about the faithfulness of Jesus, then you, you thank God for the faithfulness of Jesus. You ask to be able to imitate the faithfulness of Jesus, etc. So, whatever it was, uh, just take a few moments before the Lord to pray, and then I'll lead us together in prayer. Father, you hear uh, the prayers of your people. We pray that you will answer them, that you will listen and hear. We pray that you will respond in the best way. Draw us close to yourself. And now, corporately, as we open your word together, by your spirit, uh, instruct us deeply uh, in the things of God. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the chapter, of course, as a lot of material in Hebrews will begin, uh, starts with therefore, connecting you to what's just been said in chapter 2. And chapter 2 is about the superiority of the Son over the angels, how He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, He suffered death, how He's been exalted, and how He proclaims the glory of God in the assembly of His brothers and sisters of God's own family. Uh, he's a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's merciful and faithful, and because he has suffered when he was tempted, he's able to understand and to sympathize and also to help us when we are tempted. So, because of that, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, before he gets to the point of the therefore, that is what you're supposed to do in response. He reminds you again of who you are in relationship to himself, interestingly enough, but in relationship to himself through what Jesus Christ has done. Holy brothers and sisters. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 12 says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. 
In the assembly, I will sing your praises. So chapter 3, verse 1, connecting and about to apply what we ought to do in light of who Christ is revealed to be in chapter 2, there's a reminder of your standing. You are holy and you are brothers and sisters. Christ himself is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. He is the one who is not ashamed to identify this group of his people as his brothers and sisters. And in fact, it is in the midst of the assembly that he declares the praise of God and the name of God to his brothers and sisters. So there's an accent, a very strong accent being put here on the family relationship that God is creating amongst his people. Jesus Christ himself is not ashamed to identify you as his brothers and sisters. And the only reason he can do that is because he has sanctified you. That is, he has made you holy. You'll note that in verse 11 of chapter 2, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. It starts with sons and daughters, and it reminds you that God is making you holy through Christ so that Christ is proclaiming the name of God and God's praises in the assembly of his brothers and sisters. The only way that we can be identified as the brothers and sisters of Christ is if he makes us holy because God is holy. There's a family resemblance, like father, like son. Jesus' followers are to be like Jesus in the world. We are supposed to look like him in some ways. There should be a family resemblance. The one who calls us is holy, and he makes us holy. So, when you start chapter 3, but to apply some of this, therefore, holy brothers and sisters... This is not subjective in the sense of you ought to be living a holy life. It's actually radically objective. That is, God has made you holy. The holiness language group is used in different ways in the New Testament. We often think about holiness today in the sense of, are you living a more or less sin-free life? But the majority usage of holiness language in the New Testament is actually positional and objective. That is, God has made you holy. You have been transferred out of the realm of the common and the wicked and the worldly to belong to God. You are now in the sphere of holiness because you are in the sphere of deity. You are in the sphere of God. You are related to God as Father. His holiness, the holiness of Christ, covers you. And so the idea in progressive sanctification, that is in growing in holiness, is that you are to be drawing on the objective holiness of Christ, which is already given to you as you live in a daily way. So we're not trying to become holy or make ourselves holy. We're actually drawing down the perfect holiness of Christ as a covering in moment-by-moment decisions. We can't make ourselves holy. God is the one who sanctifies. It's the Holy Spirit who makes people holy, and he does so by empowering them to live in the reality of Christ-likeness, which is given to them in the gospel. So the brothers and sisters who are addressed are objectively holy because they're in Christ. They're reserved for God. And that then becomes true for us. As the family of God, the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ are holy holy in this positional sense. So, he reminds them 
in very short compass, holy brothers and sisters of some of the themes in chapter 2. And then he says something else. Holy brothers and sisters, before he even starts applying this again, before you get to the point of the therefore, it's holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. There's something that we all share if our faith is in Christ, and that is we have been called from heaven, and we are called to heaven. That's the heavenly calling. God speaks from heaven to us. He sends His Son from heaven to us, and His Son comes from heaven to us in order to bring us to glory, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, uh, Hebrews 2.10. And so the idea here is that we share in this incredible heavenly calling from heaven to heaven. That's where you're going. You are, uh, again, verse 10, going to glory. Here, the idea is that you're going to heaven. There's sort of different perspectives on the same thing. Now, it's, it's almost certain, almost certain, that you uh, didn't hear what I said. Uh, you are going to heaven. It's still, still... Still not not heard. They have settled down, Dave. What is going on here? Uh, you're, you're going to heaven. Now, now, if you were to if you were to actually really sort of sort that out a little bit in your mind and in your heart, that that might make just a touch of difference in your life. You've been called by God who dwells in heaven exalted above the universe, where heaven itself is just metaphorically his throne. Heaven itself is just something God sits on. The earth is his footstool. The earth is his ottoman. And from his throne, he calls you to come and be with him. And the only way that you can be with him is if you are made holy, but you're not holy at all. And so the only way that you can be made holy is if there is a sacrifice on your behalf which takes away your guilt and stain and unholiness. And that comes through the Son. The Son of God dies as that holy sacrifice to pay the penalty for our unholiness so that we can actually live with God forever. We share in the heavenly calling. You're not called, thank God, to live in this sort of environment for an endless duration of time. You are called to something higher and greater and purer. You're called to something that is, despite all the imagery, despite all the metaphor and symbol despite even some of the didactic explanation, you do know that you are called to something that you literally cannot even imagine. Now, some people in this room likely have very good imaginations. Use them to their maximum potential and force And the best vision 
put together through the most biblical theological categories will give you barely even a whisper of what it will be. We have no idea for a variety of reasons. One, we're not there just yet. But we're finite. We have no experience of being in the visible presence of the infinite God. Worse, we're still sinners. Holiness is always filtered through the grid of our sin nature still. And so we're always fracturing away the light into darkness. We're just not capable of perceiving it perfectly and purely just yet. In fact, one of the glories of heaven is finally, finally, you will actually be able to see God as He is without the distorting, disturbing, fracturing grid of sin. Even the very highest times of our worship are stained with sin. Because even the highest times of our worship, we're still offering praise to God as sinners who cannot fully comprehend Him. There's always sin tied up in everything that we do. Everything that we do falls short of the glory of God, which is why we are absolutely, entirely saved by nothing but grace from beginning to end. There is not even the tiniest little hint or addition of our own works or merit to what Christ has done because all of our works and merit, even the best of it, as Isaiah says, even our righteous acts are like filthy rags. What then are unrighteous ones like? The very best that we offer to God can only be acceptable to Him through what Christ has done. He makes us holy. Salvation is by grace and nothing else. So, you look forward to heaven and you realize that the call to heaven is a call of pure grace. Now, this is what you do. All of that's just off to the side. What you're supposed to do is this. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Now, this is maybe sort of a Janus verse. That is, it looks forward and backwards. Therefore, clearly connects you. And what you've just been told is that Christ is bringing many sons to glory. That connects with heavenly calling. Also, he was a merciful and faithful high priest, so he can sympathize with you in temptation. He can help you because he suffered when he was tempted, etc., So, you fix your thoughts on Jesus because in this world, there are an enormous number of temptations and trials. There is a lot of suffering. And and so, what what you don't want to do is you don't want to just look around at sort of environment and circumstance. You want to look at Jesus. Fix your thoughts on on Jesus. This is not a wavering sort of thing. This is not a a, a three-minute-per-day devotional exercise. This is rigorously assigning yourself the job of contemplating Jesus as you go through your life. Part of our problem, honestly, 
Simply, we spend all of our time, or virtually all of our time, worrying about the things around us rather than lifting our eyes up to the heavenly calling and to Jesus who is at the right hand of God. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. He's able to help you. He's your high priest. He's your atoning sacrifice. He's also your apostle and high priest who is faithful in God's house. So so you remind yourself of the faithfulness of Jesus, how he was faithful to God, but also that he's your apostle and high priest. That's a very interesting use of the word apostle. It's not, not what you get in the New Testament usually. How is Jesus our apostle? Usually we think about the 12 apostles. Here are the languages of Christ himself. But at a basic level, of course, the word apostle simply means um, someone who's sent, like an ambassador, someone who has invested authority, that they represent someone else. And a major theme in the Gospels, of course, is that God sends Jesus. Jesus comes to represent God the Father. And then when Jesus sends out his apostles, he sends them out to represent him, But who is he representing? God the Father. Which is why Jesus can say, if anyone rejects you, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, the one who sent you. And if anyone rejects me, they're rejecting the one who sent me. That is, Jesus is the great apostle of God. And so he comes to show us who God is. He comes with the authority of God uh, to give us the message of the gospel, to be the gospel, to accomplish the gospel, and then to bring us to God, not only through the message and the apostolic witness through himself, but also through the mediating work of being a high priest. We'll talk lots more about high priests in the next chapters, uh, because that's one of the central themes. But both these roles, calling people authoritatively to God and mediating people to God— Those two roles, apostle and high priest, are both absolutely necessary for our salvation. But what did Jesus do? He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. This is very interesting. So you think about the faithfulness of Christ, I mean, and really the the mark of an ambassador or a representative uh, messenger is that they're to be faithful to the one who sent them. So faithfulness is key. But why on earth mention Moses now? Moses wasn't a priest. Moses seems to have nothing to do with anything, actually, you know, in terms of this context. Nothing in the first two chapters which sets you up to expect a discussion of Moses. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Well, if you look back at the Old Covenant... Moses was the one through whom the law was mediated, who is the lawgiver. He was, in some sense, parallel to Jesus, in some sense. And so if he was the authoritative representative of God to Israel in the Old Covenant, then is Jesus just merely like Moses? Maybe Moses 2.0, maybe the updated version, uh, but is he just really sort of just like Moses? Well, no, the, the author is aware that a lot of his audience is going to have, this, have an enormous amount of respect for Moses. And just like with the angels, 
the author is going to argue not only is Jesus equally good, Jesus is transcendently good even compared to someone like Moses himself. Moses was faithful. Does that mean that the faithfulness of Moses and Jesus are just the same? No, for this reason. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. So Jesus is greater than angels, but is Jesus also greater? Is he more significant in God's economy than Moses? Well, yes, for a variety of reasons. One of which is this. The builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. You can go and look at incredible buildings, but the architects and engineers have more honor than the buildings. They designed them. They created them. Frank Lloyd Wright is held in higher esteem than the buildings that he designed. In the same way that you can recognize that uh, Macbeth is a work of genius, but you'd have it skewed if you held Macbeth as a piece of literature in higher honor than the genius who wrote it. That is, Shakespeare has to be given higher honor than the play that he produced. I mean, the the play that is the product of the mind is not held in higher honor than the mind that created and generated that play. It would be entirely backwards. In the same way to think that, you know, the, the, the building that exists deserves higher honor than the mind that envisioned it and the skill that put it all together. So the builder is, is, is held in higher honor than the building. God is the designer of everything. God is the builder of everything, the end of verse 4 says. And this connects, of course, with Hebrews 1-2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. This is a reminder that the one who builds the house is held in greater honor than the house itself. The Son is the one through whom God made the entire universe. God is the builder of everything. God is the architect of everything, the designer and builder of the entire universe. And so if you're going to honor, if you're going to give, give honor where honor is due, this is something that you, this is very important. This is very, very, very important when it comes to a Christian perspective on environmentalism. There's a lot of things that need to be considered here, which, which the evangelical church has not considered well because they've been uh, reactionary and viewed the issue as a politicized issue rather than in other more helpful categories. It's been tied to politics far too much. But what's really important is this. The environment should be recognized for all of its good in terms of aesthetic beauty, in terms of 
functionality, in terms of ecosystem, in terms of integration, in terms of all that an environment is. But the environment must never be held in higher honor than the creator of it. God is the creator of everything. And so, yes, as Christians, we, more than anyone else, should place a premium on caring for creation, but we need to recognize that it is creation. And honor needs to be proportioned in terms of creation to the one who envisioned it and generated it and designed it. God is the builder of everything. The builder needs to always be honored more than the building. That means that God needs to be honored more than creation. Now, I'd make a long argument if I had time that you can't honor the creator of creation without caring for creation properly. And and that's where the church should be leading the way. And and in many circles, I don't want to just throw people in the states under the bus because that's just too easy to do uh, in, in so many ways. But in many circles, particularly in the states, not only are evangelical Christians not helping in terms of caring for environment, they're doing precisely the opposite. They're actually impeding proper help for the creation. Verse 5 quotes... From Numbers 12, verse 7. Verse 2 alludes to it, but then you get the quote. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. Now you, of course, uh, have Numbers 12 memorized, and so you remember the context of this particular quote, which is, Miriam and Aaron are opposing Moses' uniqueness and exclusivity. Has the Lord only spoken through Moses? And they get all upset about it. And, and, and God comes along and he says uh, you know, a variety of things, one of which is this. Moses is faithful as a servant in my house. So the author takes this to show, yes, give honor where honor is due. Moses is a faithful servant. One of God's great servants. Very important. But... He also bore witness to something. He wasn't an end to himself. He bore witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. He was looking forward to something that surpassed himself. In fact, Deuteronomy 18, this is something which is, which is picked up in several key places in the Gospels, actually. Particularly, probably climactically, the Mount of Transfiguration. We have that whole Moses motif, the whole Sinai revisited. And in the cloud, the voice says, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Moses is right there. Deuteronomy 18, Moses says that the Lord is going to raise up a prophet like me for you. You must listen to him. And interestingly enough, there's an editorial remark in Deuteronomy that says, From the time of Moses, no one has arisen like him, meaning they were still waiting for this prophet. This prophet shows up with Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one to whom everyone is to listen. Moses spoke about the one who was to come, who would surpass him and transcend him. Now, not only that, verse 6, Christ is faithful as the sun over God's house. This is essential. Moses, as faithful as he was, was faithful as a servant in the house. 
But he didn't create the house. He didn't build the house. He didn't design the Old Testament economy. He didn't give the law. He, he didn't manifest the glory of God. He didn't even lead the people of, of Israel into the promised land, for goodness sakes. It is very limited what he did. He was faithful at the time. And the Numbers 12 passage actually shows that he was faithful during persecution. He was faithful even when his own family turned against him. He was still faithful to God. Jesus Christ, though, is not only faithful in the house. He's faithful as the one who reigns over the house. He is the one who's the builder and maker of everything. And so Moses exists in an economy he is given. Christ creates the economy in which he functions. He is the one who creates the new covenant. He's faithful as the son over God's house. Now, this is obviously a metaphor. Think about the household of Israel. Well, what is the house that Christ is faithful over? What is God's house? And we are his house. Now, without pushing the metaphor to the point to, to, to the point of breaking it, why do you have a house? What's the purpose of a house? You live in it. We are God's house. We are where God lives. The temple was always a living picture of Christ and of God's relationship with his people. God living with and in people. We are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. We are part of his house if we persevere to the end. The hope in which we glory, our future is secure through Christ. You know that. You have a heavenly calling, and you can't yet imagine what heaven will be like. You can't. You, you, you know, even now, you actually don't have the capacity to feel what you will feel there. You need, to, you need to have glorified faculties before you can, can really taste the tastes that are there. You have to have a, a glorified olfactory sense before you can smell the smells of heaven. And so the real glory of, of the new heavens and new earth awaits the resurrection body. You, you have to have a glorified one to really appreciate it. Right? So, so though you can't imagine it, you glory in the fact that you can't. And that's a paradox. You actually boast that where you're going is somewhere that you actually don't have the f- really the faintest or foggiest idea of what it's going to be like. You're just, you're just merrily packing your bags and off you're going. And you're going to trust it's going to be great. Because you walk by faith and not by sight. And this is just another reason why The gospel is foolishness to the world. You're putting everything into going somewhere that you literally can't imagine. 
Yes. And I'm proud of it. I boast in it. That's my glory. The hope in which I glory is a hope in a heavenly calling that I can't even imagine. And so what I do is I look back at Christ, what he has done in his death and resurrection and all the rest, that he has ascended, he's at the right hand of the Father, that he is building a house. And, and I don't have time to, to talk about this, but, but this is, it, is, it is well, well, well worth, if you're not familiar with 2 Samuel 7, it is well worth reading the first 16 verses of 2 Samuel 7 and seeing also all of the connections with David, kingship, sonship, and house that you get in the Davidic covenant, which you can't help but hear overtones of here, even though you're talking about Moses in this particular section. Remember, in, I'll just give you the, the, the quick version. Remember, in 2 Samuel 7, David wants to build a house for God that is the temple. And Nathan the prophet says, oh yeah, go ahead, do whatever you want. And then later, God says to Nathan, I'm not, I'm not really sure I told you to say that. You know, you jumped the gun a little bit. You go back to David and said, no, you're not the one to build me a home. You're not the one to build me a house. You're a man of blood. Your son will build me a house. But actually, David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to establish your house forever. There will be a son in your house who will reign forever. My love will never be taken away from him, etc., etc. David wants to build God a house, that is the temple, and playing on words, God says, no, 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 I'm going to build you a house, David. And it's all tied through connections of sonship, which all comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We have confidence and the, in the hope in which we glory. Our future is secure through Christ, and that we can glory in. We get a glimpse of the future. We get the smallest whisper of it. We get some symbol and revelation. We get enough to know it's somewhere where we really, really, really want to be. And we know that. Because the greatest of all the blessings of the, uh, of the new heavens and new earth is very simply summarized in God's statement that I will be your God and you will be my people. God is there. That's the blessing. You live in the presence of God. And you can no more imagine that than you can imagine a new primary color. You have no idea. And yet you know that it is an experience that you can't imagine because it is transcendent to everything you've experienced now in terms of everything. Holiness, joy, love, friendship, companionship, unity, fit. God is going to suit us for glory so that we belong when we're there. And whatever we have experienced in this life of those things, joy and love and companionship and camaraderie and laughter, all those positive blessings that we have experienced are nothing in comparison to what we will experience when we are with God, whom David says in Psalm 16, at the very end, the very end, 
as he goes in Psalm 16, actually through death, I will experience pleasures at your right hand forevermore. Pleasures at the right hand of God forevermore. That's where you're going. Don't lose your confidence in Jesus. Don't drift. Don't wander. The hope in which we glory is the hope of the heavenly calling. So fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our faith. I'm going to ask your musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.